You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Christoph Jospe sitting with my colleague and co-collaborator Ross Kenyon and producer Paul Gamble. We're here in Kirkland, not coincidentally drinking Kirkland beverages. <laughs> From Costco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We learned that's where it's named after. Yeah. I, I guess so, right? Well, Ross, how about you start us off and introduce our guest? Man, was that like trying to write with your left hand, I guess, or your opposite hand? You're left-handed, right? <laughs> he is left-handed. Okay, so it's like writing with your right hand. Normally, I start the show and then Christoph introduces them. So how was that? Was that a little weird for you? It did feel like writing with my left hand, <laughs> but I'm left-handed, so I'm still it's used very, to it. <laughs> very confusing. Well, today we are here with Roderick Jones. He is the founder and president of Rubica. They work on cybersecurity. We saw a great presentation by him at Pioneer Square Labs in downtown Seattle. We are learning about the applications for cybersecurity, the future of that, how it will look for blockchain and how vulnerable actually are these systems? What are the vectors? And we thought it'd be interesting to have him on the show to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I guess that's a good good summation there. But would you agree with that? Yeah, I think yeah. that's a. I don't that's need to retract any statement. No, okay. no, no, that's good. <laughs> and probably connect the dots along the way to why does this matter with what Nori's doing and climate change and maybe there's some overlap even. Yeah. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, security is very important, obviously, for blockchain. People tout it, but there are ways in which it is secure and there are ways in which it is not. And there are various mitigation strategies for that. It's like people never, you should never say something is secure. You say like it's security minded mm-hmm. or more secure or something like that. Right. Why don't you tell us how you got into this field? You told a story at the event that we we loved and we wanted to just repeat it. Right. So many years ago, more than 20 years ago now, I started life as a detective at Scotland Yard in London. And if you know anything about being a police detective, it's a lot of boring time hanging around, waiting for things to happen and then moments of extreme activity. And in the times when you're hanging around being bored, you kind of think about, you know, lots of different things. And I used to spend a lot of time thinking about how you would break into banks. And I was always fascinated by robberies and heists and you know this kind of stuff. In the run-up to the Millennium, there was a Millennium Dome built in the UK. And, and in it, they put the Millennium Diamond, which I think is a 43-carat diamond. And one of the greatest heists I was ever involved in, and I, I wasn't you know sort of involved in actually trying to steal the diamond, I would say, <laughs> was basically this attempt by South London organized crime gangs to kind of break into the Millennium Dome, jack their way in with industrial machinery through the protections around the diamond and steal it and then make off in the river on a boat. Which this is a Guy Ritchie film, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, the real life is always a little more mundane than the reality, but I mean, I happen to be on, on a boat on the River Thames, like to intercept the boat as it went off. But like, you know, unfortunately, because I wanted to race down the river and the boat never happened because they were captured in the act of stealing the You're diamond. like, come on, let them go a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. And I always thought it was a great robbery. And, and the reason why I brought it up at the crypto event was because I actually think it was the high watermark of kind of physical theft. I think the valuation around the diamond was might have been 350 million pounds, you know, so serious, serious value. But I don't think there's been a significant robbery attempt that looks anything like that since the millennium. If you look at where the big heists are now, it's the sort of 
almost billion dollar attempt to cyber break into the Bangladeshi bank. You know, it's like this cyber attack is like billion dollar industry. Nobody's breaking into anything. Nobody's doing heists anymore. So it makes it the perfect time for us to get together. Right. <laughs> so that's that's kind it's of where it starts. Though, right? You know, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I mean, it's just almost that's what I was thinking. It's like no one has yet written the screenplay for the great, you know, kind of blockchain Bitcoin heist that's waiting out there for Guy Ritchie to do. I think do. the, the Cohen brothers are working on something about, I think yeah. it's Silk Road though, right? Yeah. I think I think it's something yeah, maybe. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. coming. With cybercrime, when I think about it in movies, it's like the hacker. Just, I'm in the mainframe. Yeah, boring. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Except for Mr. Robot, I guess, which is the most accurate, they right. say. Right, the right, hacking, right. So. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you finally came around, Ross. You, you didn't like it before, but I'm glad you dropped it. He hasn't finished it yet. Don't okay. give him credit. <laughs> yeah. So you started working in this space. You started caring about cybersecurity. And it, apparently you went private sector at some point. Yeah. So in 2004, I moved to America from London, moved to San Francisco, started my first company, which is called Concentric Advisors. And then in that space, we started looking at cybersecurity about 10 years ago, actually, in a meaningful way. But I think the thing that drew me more recently into the blockchain and cryptocurrency piece was just this brilliant dissonance between what people assumed security and actual reality. And I think that's absolutely accelerating at the moment. I think it's almost linguistic. Some of the words used, like blockchain, it's encrypted, it's cryptocurrency. There's just this assumption from the humans using it that it's all secure. But like anything, really, it's the fundamental technology is new and therefore very open to exploitation. And it has some built-in insecurities and some added insecurities. So that kind of dissonance between the perception and the reality has really drawn me to it. And then statistically, I think I mentioned when we met that this year, there's estimates that say there's been $2 billion of cryptocurrency stolen from when Bitcoin started, so 2009, 2010. But this year alone, there's been a billion dollars. So it's an accelerating trend. There's some stats put out by Bloomberg. That's what makes it a very relevant topic for July 2018. You know? So what are some of the vulnerabilities of cryptocurrencies? Well, I mean- Ruin this for us. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would break them into sort of systemic, which are kind of slightly different to talk about. And then the kind of main action right now seems to be around usage. So it's obviously the exchanges have suffered the lion's share of attacks. The exchanges in Japan and Korea that have specifically lost large amounts of currency. That I mean, any Mount Gox is the most famous. Mount Gox, but then the NEM heist at the beginning of the year, I mean, it's $300 million walks out the, the exchange that no one has got back. You know, I mean, there's some fascinating side effects of that. So the exchanges it seem to be incredibly vulnerable, but then, it, you know, the mental pie chart is you know, exchanges, consumers, and businesses. That's where the victims have been of these attacks. And I think of those, really, consumers are the rising target. And, you know, before we started this, we were talking about the Ola VPN breach affecting people with Ether wallets. That's the new reality. You know, consumers are very wide open to having their cryptocurrency taken off them. Mm. And that's just user error. What's the acronym that you love, Paul? Oh, PEPCAC? Yeah. Do you know about PEPCAC? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Problem exists between chair and keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's always a little too easy to kind of poke fun at people. But I mean, I think people are really 
over their knowledge base in terms of how to manage private keys, these new systems. It's not friendly to new people. It's, it's, it's not at all. And it's I not think, friendly to veterans it's either. either. It's, it's, yeah, let's face it, it's just not friendly. You know? <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of catch up between the core infrastructure around the security of these assets needs to be easier to use. The whole systems need to be easier to use and more secure. And we're just not there yet. It's still very early in the systems. Oh, yeah. We've had many discussions internally about the trade-offs between being uh, custodial and really helping people mm-hmm. and not having to have them manage their public and private keys versus obviously we take on less liability if they have it but Mm -hmm. it's not as good of a user experience right but it's more secure it shields us a little bit there's a balance to strike and there are ways to do it but that's been one of the harder design questions i think we face internally would you agree with that yeah it's probably the biggest ongoing question okay so my turn to ask a dumb question what is a public and private key and so why, good. why good host why yes. do i why do i need that. to care about my public and private key what are they i mean the public and private key aspects of it i mean this comes back to the fundamental design of the system it is an encryption system it's a asymmetric cryptography right, right and yeah. you know you'll be past my limit of knowledge soon but i mean essentially how you make transfers is that everyone knows your public key and then you know essentially that's what they use to transfer these assets to you only you have your private key to see those assets it's broadly as simple as that but and, levels of complexity on top of that and we were talking about exchanges before and the exchanges when they're centralized manage your private key, which is an issue around how much you're willing to give you. And then potentially as a consumer, you don't know this, which makes you more vulnerable to attack. That's not actually quite totally true. That comes more into play around custodial services, but the exchanges actually essentially are just working as market makers. So you know, if you've got Bitcoin and you want to transfer it to Ether, you know, you have to have an exchange to do that and to make the market on both sides. And they necessarily, in order to have that trade, have to have open wallets essentially to receive and then distribute coins out of those things. And if you think about the vulnerability with cryptocurrency right now, as you know, the key one is when you have a live connection to the internet, that is when things can be transferred in and out of that wallet if you have a hacker in your environment. So that is why I think, you know, the exchanges are suffering the lion's share of big losses. It's all around when they have this trading wallet open. If hackers are in their machines, and I'll come back to that point, then they can get into that and then just transfer these digital assets out, which is untraceable. So that makes it almost the perfect crime. It's sort of like if you imagine like a big physical bank vault, normally if you're holding onto the private key, like the bank vault door is closed and you have the code to get in. And these exchanges are like, you have the bank vault and the door is open, but there are a couple armed guards standing in front of it. Like it's still protected, but it's not as closed because it's inherently more useful for it to be open. Right. That's a good analogy. And I think what the challenge is, and I think what people are beginning to understand more is that all of this cryptocurrency and blockchain infrastructure runs over machines. <laughs> you know, whether that's your smartphone, your laptop, or a server. And if those machines are compromised by hackers in any way, you inherit that vulnerability into the system. And I think there's obviously protections around that. But I think people are just now beginning to wake up to the fact that having protection around those machines is actually critical to then run these secure systems over the top. You need security around the whole piece. It's not enough just to have a secure blockchain. You need security underneath it. Maturity is developing to understand that. So those are from the user experience, either as a consumer or an exchange, and then businesses probably are fairly close to individuals too and how they manage their keys. That sounds about right. Okay, so my next dumb question, you hear about 
individuals who get a message on their computer. It's some kind of ransomware. Someone took control of their computer and they yeah. say, you know, send me X amount of Bitcoin mm -hmm. to unlock your computer. Right. And when I think about ransoms, of course, you know, you pay the ransomer, but then you're enabling up this whole new industry. And this problem exists between chair and keyboard. Right. And we don't want that to happen, but that's kind of inevitable with the cryptocurrency space. So on the one hand, cryptocurrencies enable a whole new form of money and ways to create value and a mm -hmm. great innovation and industry that we both care deeply about. On the other hand, the argument could be made, well, why do we use this if it just creates new vulnerabilities? So, Yeah, I'll break that down a little bit. I think one of the arguments that people use against cryptocurrency adoption is that it's fully anonymous and it's used to buy drugs and facilitate organized crime. Well, so is the US dollar. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you've seen an episode of Narcos, you know, or have any awareness of like drug running, I mean, it's big chunks and blocks of cash. That's how it used to be done. You know, anonymous digital money is just the same as anonymous regular fiat currency. So I've always found that argument to be spurious. And actually, there are ways to trace some of the currencies and Bitcoin is a public ledger. There's some traceability in that that actually doesn't exist within, you know, fiat currency to some degree. So I think the anonymity argument and the fact that cryptocurrency are used to enable crime is something of a spurious argument and not a very thought out one because crime existed before cryptocurrencies came and crime was quite successful before cryptocurrencies came. On the specific point of what crypto and digital crime enables is like everything in technology and now allows for enormous scale. So instead of just doing a ransom letter, which those still exist, you can now send email ransoms or you know, you can try and essentially hijack people's computers and demand Bitcoin for them to unlock their computers. So it just allows broader scale for that. But those are relatively weak attacks and easily defeated. And the one thing about ransomware is if you've backed up your systems, it's pointless because <laughs> mm -hmm. you just restart your computer and just delete the ransomware. So, you know, there are easy solutions to that. And actually, you have a clear indicator usually on how sophisticated the attack is against you, depending on how much money somebody is demanding to unlock your computer. If it's $8,000, it's probably not a very sophisticated attack. If it's $800,000, you probably got a problem. You know? So, Or I kind of wonder if from a more like socially engineering perspective, it's more effective if you get a large volume of victims and just ask them for $10. Yeah. Like, right. that's something that a lot of people might just be willing to pay and make, like make problem go away. Start releasing your computers. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. There's some hacker listening right now who's like, challenge accepted. Oh, I, I mean, I'm sure it's happened already. Yeah. No, I think that's, frankly, the history of digital crime. It's like allowed for scale, email scams, mm -hmm. phishing, all of that. It allows for scale because you only need, it's the same as sort of Facebook advertising, really. You only need 0.3% of people to click through right. if you've got a 2 billion community, it's like you've still got a big audience. This is know? the office space yeah. theft. Yeah. So yeah, to answer that, I think, you know, the anonymity so piece Superman is three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. The softball pitch that I wanted to throw to you is convince me why cryptocurrencies are a superior way of storing value than cash. It depends where you're from, I think. It would depend on your view of that. Since 1971 or 72, I forget the exact date, the, in, <laughs> the International Monetary Fund has said there's been 141 banking crises that have wiped out people's savings around the world. So if you're Argentinian, for example, which some of the early entrepreneurs in, in Bitcoin, you've seen your parents' savings wiped out and your college funds depleted, and you don't have a lot of faith in the fiat currency that was supposed to be like supporting your country. So I think there is room for 
digital assets in all kinds of areas. And people seem to be making that argument about Bitcoin as a store of value, as long as you understand its volatility. So I think there's a good argument for it. I don't think there's a problem with having more room for another kind of currency. So you've covered the, on the individual level, things that can go wrong and businesses seem pretty similar there too. And exchanges is a centralized hub. They're a big, juicy mm -hmm. target. But on the level of blockchains, you had an amazing slide at this presentation about how much it would cost to rent hashing power yeah. to a 51% attack any blockchain. Yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, something we started looking at because I started looking at the 51% problem in the context of, okay, well, where is all the mining resources? Resources currently sit for Bitcoin right now. And then when you dig into that, you quickly discover they're mostly in China, you know, which is interesting when you think about if you do believe the thesis that Bitcoin is going to become a reserve currency and a store of value, well, then most of the mining operations in China with an authoritarian government that has the power to turn all that off if it wants. Now, in the event of a 51% attack, which is where you essentially destroy the thing that blockchain is there for to create an immutable digital asset you essentially reintroduce replication if you think about it just mentally you have all of a sudden instead of one bitcoin you have two they're exactly the same thing so you can spend it twice you reintroduce this double spend problem which crashes the value of the network so the 51 percent attack is something that essentially where the mining resources on the network destroy the value of the network by just creating double resources now for that to happen with Bitcoin would cost a lot of money and a lot of computing power. But the slide I showed when we met was more when you go down that scale of these proof of work coins, you can rent the computing power at a kind of a low number to create these 51% attacks against some of these smaller coins. And you get down to the kind of values of like seven or $8,000 to rent the power for an hour to like create this 51% attack at these smaller coins. Honestly, it, it only seems in the last couple of months that people have understood that and even hackers have understood that and Bitcoin Gold suffered, I think, a $16 million loss and change because of that. And I think that was you know, a couple of months ago. So it's a kind of a recent phenomena that the kind of people in the space that want to disrupt these systems and make money of them have just understood their capability to do that. You know? But again, it's an evolutionary system right now. And it seems like the only way to really predict against that, I think there's some work done on the consensus model for making sure that it's harder than you might think to do it, but also just the size of the network, right? That's right. how I, right. like Bitcoin is the biggest. Right. So it's very expensive to change the past or right. double spend in the present. Right, right, right. The computing power to do it at Bitcoin, I mean, I think it's very expensive to do it. If you were to even try it, it would be prohibitive. I remember seeing the number once. and I, Was it hundreds of millions? Was it? I remember... It was some staggering. It's amount. not. It's not an impossible number, but it's large enough that there are very few groups in the world. It's if you wanted to destroy trust rather than steal money. Yeah, then yeah. It, it might be worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also you get into the question of actually where you know the example I gave you where you can rent those hashing computing power. They have power up to a certain level, but even theoretically, say it was seven hundred thousand dollars an hour to kind of you know attack the Bitcoin blockchain. We still actually probably wouldn't be able to rent that power anywhere. You know mm -hmm. that computing power. It, that becomes a bigger number that just isn't sitting around in AWS or anything, you know. So. Uh, maybe the number I saw was buying all the gear and setting up enough farms to <laughs> yeah. do it with everything yeah. that exists now without yeah. siphoning off. Okay. Yeah. So one way that this is sort of relevant to us at Nori is that we're building our application on top of Ethereum. Mm. Ethereum currently is a proof of work blockchain mm -hmm. that's open to the same sort of attack right now. It'll be transitioning to a proof of stake mm -hmm. uh, consensus mechanism in the future. 
which I think one of the kind of big reasons behind it is that it's less susceptible to That's this right. sort of attack. That's right. Yeah. Paul, can you define proof of stake? And also, like, why is that going to have a dramatically lower energy consumption than proof of work? <laughs> so proof of work works by you have different people at miners competing to solve a math problem. And the first one to solve the math problem finds the next block of transactions. So all the transactions that people have been doing in the previous 10 minutes or so get batched up into this block and then they're published and then everyone agrees that this is what happens. This produces an arms race of creating better and faster computing equipment to do so, but that uses up a ton of energy and is fairly wasteful, lots of waste heat and so on. Proof of stake works by getting people to submit into bonds a stake of amount of Ether in the Ethereum case. That's basically simulating that. So it's saying, so there are four of us sitting around the table here. All four of us put in some Ether into the pool. And that pool is the now like size of what is being used to confirm each transaction. You're sort of simulating it in software. It's way better as far as like security goes for this consensus mechanism, because in order to try to break the block or get the next transaction, you have to have more money than the entire pool is using. And if you're caught, which you will be, you lose all of your money. So there's a, an enormous disincentive against people trying to hack the network. I think the proof of stake networks and, you know, started researching that this year are, are going to be the future because mm -hmm. I think... I think there's actually still some governance issues to figure out totally. in those spaces. But, you know, for example, how big do you allow the staking pools to be and things like that? They're obviously solvable. There's enough people interested in it. But I think just in terms of just environmental you know, protection alone, it hasn't mm -hmm. got a proof of stake because the mining of the proof of work blockchains has proven to be environmentally prohibitive and is starting to get that kind of a reputation. And actually, the proof of stake systems as well are less susceptible. They have different security problems, but they certainly don't suffer from the same kind of 51% attack, which is just brute force. Yeah. It would have to be a lot cleverer. And I think some of the math I've seen around understanding how to defend from that is based around this, you know, kind of computing theory that came out in the 80s, the Byzantine general problem. And I don't ask me to explain it too much because I'm still <laughs> kind of gathering it, but it, you know, essentially this logic problem was used to solve the issue in critical systems like aeroplanes. If you have a sensor in a system that's telling you two things at the same time, so how do you know how to trust it? You know, And so some of the math that's pretty solid math that's been used in critical systems over the past 30 years has been transferred into these proof of stake systems to solve some of the security issues. So I think there's interesting work being done on that. And I think Ethereum has the Casper protocol and then Archain, the guys downtown in Seattle are building one as well. And they seem to be moving forward in that system. And kind of working together, collaborating on yeah, improving. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Tezos is now just launching at long last. Oh, yeah. so okay. Also proof of stake system. Yeah, I think there's a good article about them and Wired this month. There was, yeah. 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 <laughs> so Cover dramatic. Story. Cover yeah. story, yeah. 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 So what could someone do at the consumer level to make sure that they are as safe as possible? Someone who's maybe doing regenerative agriculture on our platform, who's working with Nori tokens. Yep. What's the best way that they could do this safely? There's some very simple answers to this. I mean, I think... First off, good password management, and that is, you know, kind of basic, but I'll, I'll explain why that becomes important. So using things like a password manager, not using the same passwords at the same time in different things. Like one password. Yeah, one password. Last, we, password. last pass, those kinds of things. Actually, those basics are very important. Moving away from using 
a text message as a secondary piece of authentication to using authenticator apps like the Microsoft or Google one. And I'll tell you why those things are just the starter points for getting into this is because what we've seen from the community is it would appear that crypto users seem to be disproportionately affected by the phone porting scams where your yeah. phone number is ported out to an attacker device and then they can see these secondary authentication pieces. But it relies on the hackers having got your credentials in the first place. You know, yeah. since those attacks started happening, I use T-Mobile for my service mm-hmm. and they added a feature where you That's can right. sign up to add a password That's to right. prevent that thing from happening. That's right. We actually just put out a blog on it. And I think the reason it's disproportionately affecting people in the blockchain communities is because the losses are immediate. It's, you yeah. know, once I have access to the wallet on your phone and I have those credentials, that's the end of the game. It's not like if I get your banking credentials, you can actually do some remedial mediation it's over in our space. we should probably explain what this attack is so this is a social attack this isn't really like hacking any software if you have two-factor authentication turned on for your bank account you sign in with your username and password and then they send you a text message with a code and then you put that code in to log in what people do is they call up your telco provider and pretend to be you and get them to activate a new sim card with your phone number your phone no longer works, the SIM card isn't working, and then the attacker's phone is now receiving everything that goes to your phone number. So if they have managed to steal your username and password, now they're able to also get that text message with the code. So that's why yeah. Roderick is saying like use like Google Authenticator or Authy or something like that to mm-hmm. generate real-time codes. Yeah, it feels like there should be a basic user kit for when you're starting to use cryptocurrency. And it doesn't have to be that complicated, but I would certainly say password manager for sure, authentication application. And then I would advocate, you know, some kind of VPN, a legitimate one to kind of encrypt your traffic and stuff if you're concerned. Our company, Rubica, puts specific crypto protections in through a VPN, which is unique in the market. You know, I can talk more about that, but I mean, that's, I think when you're moving into a space where the attacks are becoming more advanced against crypto users, you're going to need more advanced security. And that's what we do fundamentally. But I think it all starts with just do some good basic digital hygiene first, and you'll be a long way forward. And then you can add some advanced stuff in. And that's a virtual private network. Yeah, that's right. If you imagine your traffic being in a tube, it's like a smaller tube inside of it that shields it. That's how I imagine a that's VPN right. in my head. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. yeah. Also, when I think VPN, I think of our stand-up calls where although almost all of us are now in Seattle, our developers still in Phoenix, but when he calls in, it's never Phoenix. It's always some random place in right. the world right. because it's completely masked the right. IP address because now it's just sort of putting them somewhere else. Yeah, and it used to be the sort of VPNs. It's an old technology. The protocols are pretty old. They haven't been updated for about 10, 12 years or more than that, actually. Our engineers are always frustrated by that. They're not designed for the mobile world, really, but we'll get to that later. You know, I think part of the interest in cryptocurrency is the anonymity aspect, is the kind of retaking and reclaiming your privacy potentially and and your digital identity back from some of these larger technology companies that have sort of taken that over without anyone really noticing. And I think VPN technology, because it does reintroduce privacy for you as an individual, as gaining in popularity. And I think that's a good thing, especially in the light of where the whole technology environment is going. How do you feel about hardware wallets? You gave us those three rules of software, security, hygiene. Do you think a hardware wallet for cryptocurrency is good? And what exactly is that? Yeah. So that's somewhere where, you know, you're essentially a crypto 
coin as a, just a series of numbers and you need to store them. And, and some people actually advocate quote unquote paper wallets where that number is just written down and that's the storage, you know, that paper isn't as durable as some things and it's not as easy to use, you know, digitally. But yeah, I mean, a hardware wallet is just a place where those numbers are stored and it has extra security on. So typically they're USB devices that plug into your computer and they have some extra security to unlock then those assets inside. So the way they work is you have your public key and your private key is stored on that device and you actually never have access to your private key. So the private key never leaves that hardware wallet, never goes onto your computer where it could be potentially compromised in some way. It's just sending a token saying like, yes, I know what the private key is and you can trust me because you're connected to me. But if you lose that hardware wallet, what happens? Well, then the hardware wallets come with what are called seed words. So mm -hmm. like if you're using a ledger wallet is a pretty popular mm -hmm. one or a Trezor or however you say that. They'll have like, say, 24 different randomly generated words that correspond to your specific private key. They provide a piece of paper that you should then store somewhere else, <laughs> and then you could use that to restore it if it's lost or broken. I mean, it actually brings up a fundamental thing that hasn't been solved in the space yet is around identity and matching identity to the ownership of assets. It's a sort of fascinating problem, really. You know, we're still really talking about writing things down on pieces of paper to prove an mm -hmm. identity. I mean, clearly there's a lot of work to be done there if you consider how much biometric data is available, even just opening your iPhone, you know, it's facial recognition. So tying a lot of innovation together and creating more clear ownership structures around the digital assets, I think is going to have to emerge over the next five years to make these just more tradable, easier to use, going back to some of the stuff we started talking about. We're still in a position of writing things down on a piece of paper to prove that our assets. We're not in a <laughs> very smooth world yet. You know? We're in a period now where the identity crisis that has always been, or maybe the philosophical tension that's at the base of this entire sector is between, do people want these projects to be adopted by the mainstream? Do mm -hmm. we want banks and hedge funds and the government to use blockchain applications? Or is this a totally revolutionary, crypto libertarian, anarchistic kind of project? And there are projects that span that whole gamut too. Mm -hmm. There's some that hedge somewhere in the middle. There are some that are like very far one way or the other. That's part of the fun in this space is there's a lot of these philosophical projects going on. But I think what you're saying, though, is that you would like it where the existing financial infrastructure is quite bad, like ACH taking days, as opposed to now you can just do things that mm -hmm. clear immediately. And you could do things without having a password necessarily. Maybe biometric information is much more secure. But then also, do you want to pass that to corporations and the government relative to having a private key that's on a paper in your basement? It's mm -hmm. not in my basement. Don't go looking right. for it. <laughs> uh, part of me thinks like, is this... To some extent, the modern day keeping money under your bed, under the mattress. And are those sorts of people going to say, hey, okay, well, I didn't trust the bank in the first place, but now with crypto, I can be my own bank. And yeah, I can access my own. Yeah, bank. I mean, I think there's certainly that phrase of being your own bank is, I think, what has driven a lot of people into it. But then, you know, what happened was the price of Bitcoin went up to ten, twenty thousand dollars, and you became a millionaire and realized that you might need security like a bank. And where do you get that from? You know, how do you keep your laptop secure to secure a million dollars on it? That is not something you can buy. It's again part of the reason why we invented uh, Rubiker and built the company to provide that level of security to individuals. But I think the broader question about where this goes with regard to regulation is a fascinating one. I think, you know, there'll be a lot of hybridization of some systems being adopted by government, with government, with regulation. The space is crying out for regulation in some areas because 
the entrepreneurs are looking for definitions from government so they don't get on the wrong side of the SEC and get on yeah, the wrong side. Our life. <laughs> right. I mean, and actually where you look at the jurisdictions of Switzerland, where they've actually taken a step forward in that and said, we're actually going to define what the regulation is involving that space. They're starting to attract lots of entrepreneurs into that space because they're moving forward with regulations. So I think government will be interested in it. And I think also the great joy of the space really is it's bringing people into the financial sector that have been removed from the financial sector. You know, if you've lived in a Western economy for the last 50 years, you've done very well with the economic system. But if you've been in Africa or countries in South America where they've had economic and currency collapse, it hasn't been roses. So you're bringing the unbanked, as it were, into the system and providing a level of transparency where there's only been corruption previously is the great dream of these blockchain projects. And I think that is what makes it so interesting. There's a great book I've been reading called Blockchain and the Law. This comes out of Harvard University Press, but it talks about this tension quite a lot. But also with this increased transparency, there's increased ability for control. Because uh, mm -hmm. James C. Scott, the anthropologist from Yale, has this idea of the view from the center and centralized institutions. They like things that are neat and orderly. Like he gives an example of Paris. Parisian streets used to be all crisscross and crazy. The state didn't like that because whenever they had to put down a rebellion, they would go into one of these weird twisty streets and it would get barricaded and they get sniped down at. I think it was during the Haussmann era in the 19th century, they built the large boulevards because it was very easy to run cavalry through it and run troops and not get pinned down. In the blockchain, sure, there's like some pseudonymous characteristics of it. it. You can identify someone, or if you know how to do it, you can be anonymous, but you have to work at it. It's just mm -hmm. not built into it. Mm -hmm. There's a concern that what if all of your financial transactions were all of a sudden easily decipherable by either the government or by corporations or by criminals? And that's something that blockchain could happen with transparency. I agree with that danger. That danger sits out there. And I think we're at an interesting point in society right now where society is just waking up to the dangers of total information surveillance that wasn't imposed by government, but we all volunteered for it. You know, we all decided to use Google, Facebook, and all these services. And my, my Kindle advertises to me like Druid love stories. And I, I'm, <laughs> I want big data to come save me from right. that. Give me something better than this. Give me this. something better than that. Right. A better ad. So, We've gone more Brave New World than 1984. Yeah. 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 We've gone into that space. And I mean, the sort of Bank of England have been quite explicit about this in that, you know, they've outlawed and the European Union has outlawed large denomination notes because they didn't want them to be used as a store of value or for crime. That was the story. But, you know, the more that you digitize money, the more that you're able to control money supply and you can actually introduce deflation. You can reduce people's relative savings to control the economy. So it does provide you with more levers of control. I actually think from the innovation that's occurring in the blockchain communities writ large, some of that, like I said, it will be a hybrid. Some of it will be adopted by government. There is a high probability that digital money will exist. The United States Fed will have some play in that space, but there'll still be these other tokens as well, because it's essentially, I can decide that this is worth something and I can trade it with you. You know, with new things are attracting value all the time. I mean, if you look at the computer gaming space, you know, that whole explosion of digital assets becoming worth money. It's like the world first. of Warcraft Absolutely. Gold, like it happened there first and that isn't slowing down. You know, these special things that people are putting labor into in terms of playing these games are, are worth value and they're tradable. So I don't think you ever get to roll back the idea of digital assets <laughs> being tradable and having a value, you know, yeah. just it's, that's the nature of the space, you know.
where do you fit in professionally with this space? It sounds like an active intellectual interest of you, but where does Rubica fit in? Yeah, so Rubica, in terms of cryptocurrency, we began this project a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, because we simply wanted to provide individuals with advanced cybersecurity. And that was our task. That's how we set out. And how that came about really was I was thinking about the space and just thinking that we've been given lots of digital rights and opportunities, but no company or no government has given you as an individual the ability to defend yourself at all in the space. We claim your privacy or we claim your safety. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. So on the flip side of that, there is a have and a have not society in cybersecurity. If you work for a large institution, a big bank or a large tech company, you do get very, very good cybersecurity because good cybersecurity exists. It's just very expensive and it sits in corporations. So we decided to kind of take some of that innovation and miniaturize it essentially and package it for use of individuals. And so we built a system that does involve a VPN. So essentially a software that sits on all your devices. And we made a key innovation there. Cybersecurity in the past has always been about protecting the machines, but we said we want to protect the individual. And the machines are are attached to the individual, but we want to protect the iPhone, the laptop. You tell us all the technology you have, and we'll put our software on all of it. And then we can form a baseline of your digital version of yourself, and then we'll protect that. So we did that. And as we were building that, and we launched it into market last year at a very high price point, just to kind of, because it's expensive to start with, just to see what the market looked like. Then, as I said, this thing that we couldn't have predicted, Bitcoin price goes to almost $20,000 and you have a whole new generation of people who are suddenly very interested in advanced security because they have <laughs> digital assets and no protection for them. So we were working almost in parallel with a community that we weren't really talking to at the time. And then we started to merge. And when we just completed our last round of funding, we took you know some strategic investment from Reflective Ventures who are attached to the R-Chain project, mainly because I saw that as a pathway for us in the future. It's like part of the problem with cybersecurity for consumers in Western society is people do not understand how vulnerable they are and they need a lot of education in terms of how much security and how vulnerable they are online. You don't have to do that education with the crypto community. They're already there. They already understand that if I have a $10,000 coin sitting on my computer, I probably should buy some protection for that computer, you know, and the rest of it folds in. So that was how we became, you know, more merged with the kind of crypto space. And you were talking earlier about some tokenizing performance on this, on this network or something. How, yeah. How does that work? So as any good entrepreneur should, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from a, another good entrepreneur in San Francisco, we were talking about fundraising and the venture community in Silicon Valley, which is uh, an interesting space to examine. You know, he just turned around and said, well, your number one job is to hack the matrix, is to think of a way around this and get the best terms you possibly can. So obviously I started looking at ICOs at the time, you know, I was kind of thinking, oh, that's interesting. What I started to think about was, well, actually, the fascinating thing about blockchain systems is that it is a new way to organize it. You can create micro incentives for people to act in a virtuous way in networks, which is really important. Uh, that's, that's what we talk about every single podcast. Right. Yeah. So guess what my number one problem is? I'm trying to get people to do virtuous things. I'm trying to get them to give themselves safety protect yourself and your family. But people don't want to do it. It's like, oh, well, I'll take care of that password manager thing on Sunday. I don't really want to do it. So my idea was, and I think it's something we'll probably still explore this year, is if you could create a token that when people 
had our cybersecurity service on, they were rewarded, they earned tokens for doing that, and we could create that kind of virtuous circle in that network of the more cybersecurity. Now, the value to us is when you have Rubica running on your service, we might see an attack against you, and then that data we can use to create even more value in the network. It felt like a very blockchain-type project, you know? You're paying people to be more secure, and right. in the process of doing so, you're making the network more secure. Right, right, which is a perfect... <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's a, but it's a perfect use of, yeah. of the idea, right? So as an entrepreneur, you're always kind of scanning for ideas, and I was sitting next to a very smart guy. He was a lawyer. He was a lawyer at a big VC firm and then found the light, and he was saying to me, like, we've been organizing companies in the same way since the 17th century. The Dutch kind of like stock corporation, the Brits kind of ran wild with. He said, there's a new way of doing this. He said, that's what's exciting about blockchain. He's like, you can create these micro incentives and to create network effects. The position I'm in now is, okay, I'm trying to build a consumer cybersecurity company. As we mentioned earlier, all of the ways that's been done in the past of just sell through fear, sell through fear. I think that is you know, an old model and I don't really want to pursue that. So I think the idea of motivating people to contribute to a network and rewarding in that and us essentially, you know, managing that seems like a way smarter 21st century way of organizing a cybersecurity company. Yeah, that's the idea. I'm kind of taken aback a little bit. Yeah, that's brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I saw I haven't come out with a name for the token, but rubies maybe, but that seemed a little trite. Yeah. Uh, Like it's cutesy. Are you sure it's not already taken? Those tickers. Maybe. They get taken pretty quick. But the other thing that's beautiful about it is you can incentivize so much more of the network as well. Like, you know, people looking for bugs get legitimately rewarded. People hosting some of the key VPN and nodes, guess what? They earn more rubies potentially for kind of hosting that. And everyone's incentives are aligned to make sure the whole thing's secure Mm -hmm. because that makes the tokens worth more money and all the rest of it. So it remains an interesting idea. You might need a lower price point. I know you started a, a bit high, but maybe this is a way to... Yeah. You, I you think, want a robust network with lots of Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a thing that I think... I mean, we had some really great people work for us and I'm asking them about... You know, I've, I had some 10 years ago now around what would happen when you go big IoT, you create internet of things, you create all these sensors out in an environment. And then so this creates different value propositions, you know. And so I've always felt that the more users we have obviously we see more data but that we see more threats and we're already seeing that at a small number of users we see threats first we saw some of the big attacks last year before anyone else just because we had a different data set we're looking at so i think there's a very interesting opportunity there to push that out and i think we're going to launch a new price point in autumn in the fall which will allow more users to adopt the service i'm not going to say the number yet but it'll be significantly lower than where we started because we want to attract more users in and you know we'll see where it goes but i still think there's something quite exciting about using tokenization as well That's great. I think uh, this is a good point to close it out then. Thanks so much for being here with us, Roderick. Thank you. And then are you going to tell me to do the thing? Yes. Dear listener, if you like what we do, please review us. Give us a good review. Give us a good rating. Share it with your friends. Help get the Reversing Climate Change podcast out there. If you like the show, that's the most important thing you could do to help us. And thanks for listening. Thank you.